Hey everyone, I know it's been quite some time since we have posted an episode. A year or more, in fact, I think. Rob is out on the West Coast, and I finally got my act together and decided to go interview someone. And here it is. Let's make this official. So, I'm Jacob LaRocca, and this is... Charles Steckler. And this is the first episode of A Maker Tale in quite some time. Um, but Charles was one of my professors when I was in college, and he's retiring, and I wanted to hear some stories. So, uh, I'm here at my fifth reunion, five-year reunion, and i um, asking him some questions. 2012? 2012. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm retiring, and I guess I'm graduating. <laughs> yeah, this will be my last class, and I'll I'll commence with my uh, with my graduating seniors. So, if you could tell my listeners what exactly it is that you do, um, I'll I'll summarize what I know that you do. Okay, and then you correct me because I'm sure there's more. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, I know Charles as a puppeteer, and a set designer, and a set builder, but I'm sure there's more. So, do tell. So, um, let's see how to, how to start the, the story. Um, so when I was a kid, <laughs> hey, it's how they all start. when I was a kid uh, growing up in the Bronx and then, uh, and then Queens, um, so I think it was, I was one of those sort of self-identified kids as, uh, as a, as an artist or an art kid, yeah. an artsy kid. So I always made things, made things with my hands. And uh, it only happened that I found uh, found my way into theater in high school. We didn't have uh, a theater program. We had a um, an after school theater club. Oh, cool! And so I met some kids, and they were doing that. So I joined the club, and I you know stay there from like uh, three to five, and we would do shows. We had a a teacher who advised the group, and then we would um, uh, choose plays, rehearse them, and perform them. And so that ha- that's sort of how that got started. Later on, after after I graduated high school and went to college, I uh, thought I was the uh, an art student, so I um, hung out in the art department, took studio art classes, all of you know sculpture and painting and drawing and all of that. But then I also ended up uh, over in the green room in the theater, hanging out with the theater kids. And I then I met a guy who was uh, the the stage designer. At, and this was Queens College down in New York City. And, now, I have uh, to say, I don't notice any hint of a inner city accent. That's probably because I took theater classes, and so I, yeah. So you've, my, you've my, uh, ginger, ginger, written it uh, out of yourself? <laughs> yeah, my, Ginger uh, teases me because my both my sister and my mother have really strong New York accents. And yours is just... Gone. Just a little, <laughs> little bit softer, maybe, I don't know, yeah, sometimes. That's funny. When I hang out with them, I think it gets more pronounced. I can the, imagine The Bronx that does. comes out. I mean, it's kind of like when Catherine's around her family. Uh, we have a mutual British friend. And yeah. Being in America is... It waters down the accent after a while, and, but when she's around her family, it definitely comes back. Yeah. We just saw her ye- uh, yesterday. Yeah. She bopped into the theater, and I showed her the set, and... Yeah. yeah. So, um, so in so so in college it was very interesting. I thought I was just going to be a, a studio artist, and uh, then I met uh, Jay Keen, and Jay Keen was the uh, was a professor at Queens, um, a stage designer, 
costume designer. What year is this? Uh, it's got to be approximately 64, 65, maybe 66. Okay. I graduated in 68, so I met him somewhere in there and slowly became enamored of the theater and realized that, oh, stage design, that's like a thing you could do. And, um, and, and so it was the same materials. It was like making stuff out of uh, lumber mm -hmm. and canvas and paint and, and glue. Life size. But big, yeah, like really big, and it was just like, whoa, this is great. And I just loved the physicality of it and the scale of it, and and yeah. uh, and so because I was a maker, I mean, designers eventually you can come to design from any any number of different directions, but some designers, and I think <coughs> I include myself in that, is that uh, I come from wanting to make things with my my hands. Yeah, and so. That was that sort of convinced me, and then but I had no idea of like you could actually do this as a career. I had no no clue that you could do this. I thought you would just just do it when you had time to do it. And he uh, and Jay said, uh, "Why don't you apply to grad school?" And I like scratched my head and said, "Huh, really?" Um, and so he, uh, you know, when you talk when you look back on your life and you think about the mentors, the people in your life that gave you a piece of advice or a helping hand or a leg up and uh, uh, suggested something, and then you look back and you say, "Hey, that's where my life, you know, Diverse. turned this yeah, way." Yeah. And had Jay not been so encouraging, I don't, know, I would have done, I would probably gone into my father's lumberyard business. Oh wow, that's what he wanted. Uh, so you grew up around wood then. Absolutely. My father had a lumber yard in the, in the South Bronx, and uh, my job was growing up as a teenager was to uh, work with him in the summers and work uh, work there on weekends. You know, it's funny because some of the other makers I've interviewed are grew up in the Bronx as well, ah. around the time, so they may have known your your father. Ah, um, that's, that's interesting. That's interesting. Kind of interesting. That was, it was a Bronx thing. Yeah. I wonder. Yeah, um, so the uh, so I grew up with uh, with lumber and splinters and hardware and paint. The other thing, uh, just a little bit of a sidebar, my father must have had a bit. I think the family business uh, way back before I was born was in uh, they manufactured uh, stationary goods, which was uh, desk pads, desk sets, file boxes, things made out of um, cardboard and paper and glue. Okay. So that business um, went out of business and ended up uh, in our basement. All of the uh, stacks and stacks of, uh, of uh, cardboard, glue, gluing machines, machines that cut paper, and so um, that became your, leather. Your playground. Became my playground. Because he just left it there. He was never going to. So I got to make stuff oh, out of this so cool. material. <laughs> so it was lumber on weekends and then, you know, glue and cardboard uh, over the, you know, over the, uh, during the week. And so I'm assuming this is how your uh, diorama skills were um, introduced? So Absolutely. I was making little stage models. Little, I didn't even think of them as, as stage set, just as little models, little dioramas. Uh, and I remember building these things and then um, cannibalizing the stuff from my railroad, my model railroads. Oh wow! So I had my little, I had my little transformer from my Lionel set yep. light up the little all the lights that I put into these models. Oh, that's so awesome! It was so much fun, and it created kind of a reality. You'd look into this, you know, small space, this little box or tabletop thing, and you could believe that it really was a, like a landscape or a country scene and a little house and trees and forest. That's really cool. You know, that's very cool.
So, college, you went to grad school. So then uh, Jay suggested that I go to uh, grad school, apply to um, three places, um, got into into Yale, and I'm sure Jay had gone to Yale, and uh, I'm sure uh, he wrote a strong letter of recommendation, and I submitted a portfolio. And uh, so I went to the, to the School of Drama at Yale. That's a three-year uh, MFA program. And that was life-changing, was truly life-changing. And even at that point, I remember my father, who really wanted me to go into the lumber business, when I told him I was going to grad school, he said, and, and what I was going to do with it, and he said, can you make a, a living doing that? And I said, I haven't a clue. I have no idea yeah. if there was actually you know, real legitimate um, paying work out there. Um, that's not what I was doing it. For me, it was still sort of an aesthetic experience. Yeah. Um, but I knew that it was, uh, uh, the school was famous for, um, you know, for its, its training program and, the, and the, uh, the teachers there were people that I knew from reading books. Oh, cool. You know, Donald Oenslager was uh, my first design teacher and he was at the end of his career. So I had one year with uh, uh, Mr. Oenslager. No, you always called him Mr. Onslager. And he was famous. I mean, he had done Broadway shows and uh, major works that were published in, in the books that I, you know, I love to look at. And uh, so that was great meeting him. But he was old guard in the sense that uh, his career was, uh, was the previous 30 and 40 and 50 years. Yeah. So he was renowned and I was sort of, we were all, all of us in that class were sort of awestruck to be in his presence. And then he retired, and Ming Cho Lee came on board. And Ming Cho Lee, uh, also being sort of uh, younger, considerably younger, but also quite quite famous, and uh, subsequently became even uh, more and more and more famous. And Ming just this year, uh, in fact, now is grad is uh, uh, is um, retiring from the Yale School of Drama. Oh wow! Yeah. And they just published a fabulous monograph of his work, a life a life compendium of uh, of so his cool. stage designs. So I got to I got to study with um, two really great designers, plus everyone else that was there, all yeah, the other course. all the other faculty. But these were the two that were sort of uh, celebrities. Mm -hmm. um, so that was great. Um, I got to the end of my final year and had no idea what I was going to do. We were living in New Haven. I figured I'd better start thinking about uh, getting gainful employment because I needed to pay back my student loans. And I yep. went to the placement office at uh, at Yale, and they and they had listings of uh, jobs. And there was a a listing for a part time position as a stage designer at a place called Union College in Schenectady, New York. I vaguely remembered Schenectady, New York, from my New York history in, <laughs> in middle school, in junior high school. And um, so I looked it up, um, made a phone call, set up an appointment, came over here, met with uh, the chair of the department, uh, Edgar Curtis. And uh, Edgar brought me over to campus, and I interviewed with the Mountebanks. <laughs> Which is uh, the student... student performing organization student dramatics uh, yeah the undergraduate uh, dramatics club which 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 was pretty much the the major theater presence at Union really there really was no department 
Okay. There was the Mountebanks, which had a long, a long history. Yeah, they have a very going very back long to history. the late twenties or thirties yeah. of producing continuously. So it was basically a student-run operation, but there was a faculty member here uh, who um, was their advisor and directed plays. So it had a legitimacy as being a real, you know, real thing, not just a club. Mm -hmm. And um, so I liked it, but the job was only half time. Forty-five hundred dollars. I didn't know how we were going to do that, but um, I liked the place, and I liked the students, and they walked me over to the not they walked me over to the not memorial, one of two sixteen-sided buildings in the northern hemisphere. I'm not even sure. It Something may be like that. it's 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 unique and singular in some in some fact or feature, and I don't know what that I, I think what it's that the, is. It's the number of sides. Number yeah, I six, correctly. yeah, yeah. So it's a roundish buildings and a building, and I walked in there and uh, I looked at it, and it was all. Um, it had a small six-inch high, eight-sided uh, raised stage in the middle, and it was a theater in the round. And I'm a designer, and theater in the round doesn't give you much opportunity to to do a it's lot, hard, yeah. a lot of design. Um, but I loved the building. I felt totally, totally enamored of the building itself. And, um, it is a beautiful building. It's <laughs> tremendous. Um, you made a you made the 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 the, the not memorial out of library cards. Huh? Yes, uh, just for our listeners, uh, my senior year, there the library at Union was digitizing all of their catalog cards, <laughs> and so once they were digitized, they had nothing to do with them. So they had a contest to um, build something out of them. And I wasn't actually originally going to do it, but my girlfriend at the time decided to do something, and I was like, well, I mean, I guess I could. It looks fun. And <laughs> I ended up winning the competition. Yes, you did. <laughs> my, I know. My, my girlfriend was not pleased <laughs> because she got second. Oh. So <laughs> had I not, she would have won. Um, but I ended up building two models of the Knott Memorial out of only catalog cards and glue. Um, one of them was small, and it actually was put into a time capsule that's going to be opened in like 95 years now. Oh, yeah. Um, and one is like about three feet tall, and it's it's half the knot, half of the knot memorial. Three feet tall, really? Yeah, it's about that. Oh, I don't know that I ever saw that one. That one is actually the in the library right now. If you go in, you can see it behind the desk. Oh, great. Oh, well, I will. Um, yeah. So, uh, so another interesting little uh, little factoid which makes this uh, story so uh, even more poignant is that um, prior to its um, its existence as a theater the not memorial theater yep. the not memorial building was the campus library yeah and that's actually where I got the idea for yeah. doing it so but it was something sort of neat about taking those uh, the card catalog cards and rendering the not memorial out of them. Yeah, There's it's, something it's very clean cool. about that that whole thing. Yeah, really sweet, really sweet. Um, no, I don't think I ever told you this, but I, at one point when I was here, I was building, I was writing riddles to um to for just like people on campus to find find the solutions to, and then uh, just for fun. Yeah. Um, and so I'd post them all over campus, and then people would have to go around and find the solutions, and then at the solution there'd be another riddle, and they could do that. So there were, there were clues. Yeah, so yeah. I'll, I'll show them to you later. At one point, there was one that was uh, find the book whose namesake is your founder. Or I don't remember the exactly word. Basically, it was implying that 
you have to go to the library and find a book about not like a specific book because the not memorial was once the library and it was and uh, it's a book about a little at not yeah about it yeah. Ah, yeah. Yeah. That, that was just the one that i decided to use yeah that yeah, they needed yeah. To find. but yeah there was a book in there about yeah. a little at not so yeah, that's yeah. fantastic. There's like a lot of really cool history. I, I could probably do a whole episode just on yeah, the history I, of this we place. Can, we but... can go off on a, another <laughs> um, tangent. tangent yeah. I, um, you we're celebrating the uh, uh, reunion, so all of the students are back on campus, and uh, um, and it's a big party. I, I there were many years when I didn't attend. It's more uh, of a this. party than than I even I remember it being. Is honestly, it? I I was. Um, ple pleasantly surprised. I usually didn't do. Usually, we're in a tech rehearsal. Typically, uh, reunion weekend yes, and our yeah. final I, tech rehearsal. I believe that coincide. it was called Hell Week by students. <laughs> Real? Why? Well, because tech tech rehearsals are pretty brutal. Oh, and in the theater, it's it's Hell Week. Yes. And then having alumni weekend and being in tech week to miss the fireworks. Yes. And like, because there's always fireworks on alumni weekend, so there's a. <laughs> yeah, we would be doing we would yeah exactly right exactly and then the other thing is from the students' point of view um, they've got two weeks left and so they're dealing with um, preparing yeah. for preparing final for exams finals, final yeah, papers yeah. theses everything that makes them anxious and crazy <laughs> yeah so I've I've seen a bunch of pictures actually from I'll I'll post some of the pictures of the sets that you made in the Knott Memorial and like just the uniqueness of the theater and the round architecture actually allows you to do some pretty cool things. It, it, uh, people say when they when they see the theater that we have now, which is a black box theater, and it's more sort of conventional and, and, and understandable, but when you walk into a 16-sided a building, people say, boy, that must have been really difficult. And actually, it, it wasn't, partly because of the, um, the college's uh, a sort of, I don't want to say, ben benign, neglectful attitude towards... Uh, people that use the building. We were invited in, given the keys. Here you go. Do what you do. You're the designer. You're the you know. You're the theater people. Of course, you know now you, you do. can't touch it. But now like. you can't. But back in the, and at that time period, um, they know they certainly didn't want us to hurt the building. They yeah, knew what the value of the building was, but they didn't really tell us uh, you can't Don't, do this. Yeah, you yeah. can't do that. They just said go and do what you want to do, and so. Over time, and I won't say a lot of time, maybe within the first year or two, we started to first. The first thing I did, first thing we did, was I used the theater as is. It was for the freshman orientation play in uh, 1971, and I used the theater just the the way it was. I left the little stage in, and I built a stage set. And I'll show you pictures. Called yep. the play was called uh, Madman and the Nun, and so we built. We built walls and we repainted the whole theater, the whole interior of the theater, oh, wow. and so the audience was able to sort of look into the set. And it was a it was a theater in the round. We yep. set it up so the audience could look in and see the play in the in the in the center. And uh, for the the second and third and subsequent plays, we started removing things. So I took out the eight sided stage, and so now we were down on the flat. Soon thereafter, I removed one of the four seating sections. Sometime uh, in early in the following year, I actually removed a whole wall that that uh, there was like a um, uh, a barrel collar, yeah, inside the inside the the, the theater itself. So um, it uh, it created the theater space and it created a corridor space around the theater space. So you got rid of that wall. So I got rid of so one of bigger. the walls. So now we had an opening. 
So uh, then we could do kind of a thrust arrangement, audience on three sides. We had a projected stage that we could um, install or remove as, as we so prefer. Cool. And then I started to do more environmental things so that the audience could be placed in uh, anywhere in the, in the space. And so over time, we started to do theater that was, we could never do strict proscenium, but we could do end stage, audience on one side, half of the circle, performance on the other half of the circle. Mm -hmm. We could do theater in the round, we could do thrust, we can do environmental, where the audience came in and went up to the balcony level and looked down into the theater. Oh, cool. We did complete environment. I did one where we turned the whole room into, um, into a circus, into a circus museum. So the floor was covered with uh, sawdust, and tenting, the whole interior was completely enveloped in tenting that came oh, that's so cool. down and billowed down like a tent, just like a tent. That's so cool. So the audience walked inside the tent. And so it, we did, yeah. So that's the so audience cool. was not looking at or into a stage set, but actually were inside the stage set themselves. Um, so we did a lot of stuff, and since the, um, we didn't have fire marshals coming in and, you know, um, doing test burns of the stuff, so we weren't. I mean, I you know nowadays you couldn't you couldn't do these things. Now yeah. we, we you know we have much uh, stricter uh, rules about um, fire and health and safety and uh, and, and practices. Um, but I, if I do say so, I think that your sets are still amazing. So thanks, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, I, I especially uh, which one was the one I liked the most? Which one was the one where there was an explosion? Uh, House of Blue Leaves. So in House of Blue Leaves, I remember which we setting didn't up hear. a giant subwoofer behind one of the walls so that it would rattle and shake. Yeah, the... yeah, yeah. They're supposed to be. Uh, yeah, that's really funny. <laughs> uh, I just yeah, remember, there's an. I just, I just liked that set specifically. Um, this, the Peter Pan set was really fun too. Peter Pan the was sort of gym. environmental. Yeah. Uh, yeah, big scaffold. A scaffold, a bridge. Yeah, we bridged. Uh, monkey bars. Monkey bars, uh, projections. We had students in the uh, in the um, film studies uh, program yep, here that. who were also um, filmmakers, and uh, so they made video, and uh, then the video was uh, projected onto the onto the set and various. Uh, uh, yeah. So the newest uh, Broadway performance of. Uh Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. Yeah. Have you seen it? I have, yeah. I heard that the projection... System, so you haven't seen it? I haven't, but I've, I've heard that the projection systems in that are amazing. It's going to, it's gonna, you know, it's going to blow your proverbial socks off. I got to <laughs> tell you. I, so I went to the, see this thing. So the the, um, the touring company came through and they performed at Proctor's. Mm -hmm. And I heard from, uh, you know, we have a, um, uh, a London, uh, London theater um, uh, mini term. So the students who went over to London saw it, saw there. it there, came back raving about it. So when I saw that they were going to come to Schenectady, you, we you got went, down yeah, and yeah. saw it, and uh, it, it was incredible, just incredible, sort of mind-boggling. So I'm not really a technician. I'm mm -hmm. sort of really not my side. Yeah, yeah, I'm a sort of a materials and yeah, stuff. more of a painter, sculptor type. But yeah. the but the the technology in this thing was so baffling. And of course the story was really powerful yeah, and the performances are really powerful. But all the time I'm looking, how do they do that? How do they do that? How do they do that? Projections were just so strong. 
And then, as it turns out, I taught a stage design class the term after, and I had a student who did his uh, research topic. On, they all have to do a research uh, mm -hmm. topic on a related area having to do with did stage he, design. projection mapping? He did, he, he did um, the Curious Incident oh, cool. and told us about the history of it. And apparently, originally, it was not a full proscenium show. It was actually a theater in the round. And then when they took the thing to to uh, to a main theater in London, and then eventually came to New York, and eventually went on the road, they they recontrived it for uh, proscenium. Oh, cool! And it's a really interesting story. That's very cool. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that was just tremendous. Yeah, beyond way beyond my skill set, but I can appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I can see how if you're used to building solid sets that can't necessarily immediately change like that, uh, then that would be you know, an it, interesting addition. It, it's really interesting, um, as I mentioned before, designers come to their field from different directions. Um, so some are en engineers, and some are uh, painters, easel painters. You know, people you know make paintings of landscapes. They come from it from from that point of view. Um, architects. Sometimes the thing that confuses me, like just in my my own work, um, I like to think of myself as a fabricator and a, a little bit of a designer. Um, when I meet people, mechanical engineers who have zero fabrication experience. It kind of confuses me. How can you be an ME and not? Uh, what's where, where do they divide? How do you see that? The... That's what I don't understand. They have huh. all the theoretical education, so they're mechanical engineers, but they haven't ever machined a bolt or, oh. Oh, or oh, 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 oh. actually fabricated um, a prototype. Uh, so, like. So, one of the units that we've been working on, some of the problems that came about while it was being designed were that these industri industrial designers, too, who I thought the idea of industrial design was that you learn how to fabricate and then design based on that experience. Some of the things that they designed were like barely able to be fabricated, and if they were, it was extremely expensive. Um, and oh. so, like, just it's interesting how. Uh, there are designers who can think up these crazy things, but then there also have to be the people who know how to make those things into a real physical object. Now, today, with all like the CNC machines and 3D printers, like all of this stuff is way more possible than it used to be. You still um, need a programmer, so you need absolutely. an interface who can absolutely. Yeah. But they can they can conceptualize these things, and you're like, oh, okay. Well, whereas like you couldn't have necessarily used a manual mill or right lumber to make that before you could just 3d print this crazy complex shape perfectly fine um right but it's just it's just interesting how um it, you are definitely one of the people who you can conceptualize something and know for certain that it's able to be built you know that it's interesting you say that uh, because <clears throat> As I said before, you know, my, I started out as a uh, as an art student, which means that I fell in love with um, pretty early on, like clay and paint, mm -hmm. and eventually wood and cutting wood and gluing things together and making these things. So, and <clears throat> when I came to Union College, um, the opportunity was to be the designer. That's what they were looking for. 
but we had no uh, staff, no crew, no no tech. So you had to end up. So I had to make this stuff myself. And the reason, one of the reasons why I I stayed here uh, all of these years is that I had the opportunity to make these things myself. And that myself, and that's what I fell in love with was making the things with my own hands, and then standing back and looking at them. And there are a lot of designers that are are uh, content or satisfied or that's just sort of the, the reality of having a career is they they make a scale model they make the uh, drawings of front elevations they make a ground plan and they turn it over to a shop yeah and then they come in later on and maybe they paint and maybe they don't paint maybe somebody maybe you know master painters come in and do the paint the paint and finishing and they never actually yeah, put their I, own hands on the object. I I've never, never been that kind of designer. Never be able to do that. I mean, yeah. So, yeah, I guess you could you can still classify those sorts of designers as makers because they still have to make it physically oh, yeah. in front of them. Yeah. But it, like you said, it's not the scale that it's going to be. But then there's right. also the designers that I've had to work with before that um, they design this thing, but because they don't have to build it at that scale, they don't understand why something might not be as possible as they had originally thought. Um, specifically, architects with engineering. Absolutely, yes. Um, yes. What do you mean I can't hang a light in this area? Or, like, it's because there's physically not any structural place to hang that light from. <laughs> the light weighs 250 pounds. It's 12 feet long and 3 feet wide and, like... <laughs> Okay, but you know, uh, so this is, I find this really, a really interesting conversation because um, one of the, one of the things I keep hearing us, me and my and the faculty in the theater department talk about, uh, we extol the virtues of uh, collaboration, that theater is the place where different people come together, you know, directors mm -hmm. and actors and technicians and visual artists and people who make things out of, out of cloth and people who make things out yep. of steel. And, yep. and this is the place where collaboration takes place. And really it's... Um, while, while that is true, the, the problem of communicating across sensibilities and disciplines is, is a difficult thing. It's not an easy thing. And this is where it takes place. It takes place here in, uh, in the theater. But still, you know, you have your vision. Director has a vision. Yeah. I have a, a sense of the picture. Right now we have a stage set uh, in the theater for, for a play we're doing. And while I was working with uh, our technical director, uh, Bob Bavard, <clears throat> I'll say, how about if we do this? And he say, well, you can't do that because, you know, and he'll tell me things about, you know, code, uh, <laughs> you can't cantilever this, or it's not going to be rigid enough, it's freestanding, there's no place to tie off, it's going to vibrate, we're going to, you know, uh, that, that, that element is going to deflect, you can't really hang on it, it's got all of these kinds of things. And I, I, I took an engineering course when I was at Yale, a theater engineering course. So mm -hmm. I understand the principles, but I can't do the computations. Yep. So when somebody tells me you can't really do this because of this, I, you know, I believe them. But also, when I look at a thing, I think, you know, all right, so it's going to vibrate. But is it going to distract or to what extent? We're not building a road. We're not building a bridge. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to get hurt. We know yep. that it's not going to fall down. We know that much. But is it, you know, and so there's a little negotiation there between a yeah. technician who wants the thing to be uh, technically perfect and the artist who says, you know, good enough is good enough. This is theater. Yep. We're not sending a rocket well, to so the moon. Well, theater is totally different than in, like, 
an office building. So Absol- like that's that's yes. my experience is like right. dealing with architects of like office buildings and like right. foyers and stuff like that. So, but but there's like, also the visionary, the person th- who who maybe in a way is uh, somewhat ignorant, and they push the technicians to. Um, to make the technology advance, them, yeah. move, move oh, forward. Absolutely, I, I completely agree that that is one of the ways that technology advances. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Some 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 jerk totally. saying, "Oh, why don't we do this?" And well, I, no, no, it has to be this way. I'm this paying this you this much money right. to make this work, so right. you're going to make it work. Like, yeah, it, absolutely, that is the case. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's really cool. It's a great. It's a great thing. Um, yeah, it's a great, it's a, it's a fascinating dynamic. Yeah. So of all the sets that you've designed, do you have a favorite? You know, I've been asked this a few times and I personally yeah. really like the one, I don't remember, I don't know what play it is. There's a picture out in the lobby of uh, like the mounds of junk. Uh, the great, the large photograph, the yeah, very the, large the photograph. One. Um, with like the chairs on the wall. Yeah, like that's the government. It's uh, the government inspector, or sometimes translated as the inspector general by uh, Nikolai Gogol. And uh, we did it in here in the Yulman Theater. And um, it's sort of interesting. There's some... Because there's a spiral staircase in the back. A spiral and staircase like... and, a, and a bridge. Yeah. Uh, the bridge is a little bit concealed, but in the performance, you can uh, the actors run across the bridge, and you can see their heads sort of bopping up and down. Uh, I like that one, but I'm sure you have your own favorite. Yeah, that one. Every project um, has a different uh, requ- requirement or a different um, challenge, mm-hmm. and uh, that one looks like it was cobbled together because it was cobbled together. Okay. Like the um, most of the elements. I mean, it was supposed to look like that. It was supposed to look like look like it was just you know sort of brought together, different disparate elements brought together and assembled in a herky jerky, teetering you know about just about ready to fall down way. Yeah, it was meant to to look like that, and a lot of the the elements were um, reused. Yeah, they were all found. All found stuff. stuff. Yeah, Yeah. that's cool. Yeah, but was. Let me rephrase the question to make it easier for you to answer. Was there a specific piece of any one set that you've designed that you always have wanted to do again? Like a type of element or like a way that you set up the stage like that you've wanted to try again a different way or a new way or use again? So this is this may be a, a, a sort of an indirect answer to that question, um, and it also goes <laughs> as I'm leaving the field, I'm starting to have um, more sophisticated thoughts about oh, what did course, I do. Now that I... now I can sort of relax, I can actually look back and think, oh, really? Is that what you? I'm starting to so so designers by training are not supposed to have. A personal individual style. They should. They are supposed to, by okay. training, okay, yeah. be able to, be capable of designing a realistic set from any period throughout time. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to be able to do uh, fantasy, poetics, um, p- 
period pieces, non-period pieces, musicals. Uh, period you know, pieces that have non-period elements. That have non-period <laughs> elements. Um, they're supposed which, to be which able one to... of our directors has a habit of including. Well, yeah, really. Patsy. Well, Patsy loves doing that. She does. I don't, I don't know if you get to see this show, but yeah, we think we're in the world of of, of Moliere, so that somehow we're in like you know. Uh, the mid mid late 1600s, but their our costumes are like 1830. Yeah, yeah. But uh, some the, of the musical elements are you know contemporary. From, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Anyways, continue. so yeah, so, so there's that mix of mix of styles. But you need to know your styles if you're going to do that. Yeah. Um, so by training, designers are supposed to be able to do, do anything, and yeah. to to a greater, or larger, lesser extent, one uh, should be able to do anything. But what I've noticed is that designers, um, maybe in spite of in spite of their training, um, do eventually have a style. Absolutely. Yeah. You know? Yep. So and I think that my work has probably um, had a style and I didn't know it. Well so now you should put everything next to each other in a book and then be like, I see it. <laughs> Sort I I sort of have uh, with my book. Oh, I forgot you had a book. Yeah, yeah. With the with this, although you know this was like ten or twelve years ago, and you know I've done a lot, many many <laughs> more shows more since, since then. then. Yeah, yeah. But what I found is partly having to do with my uh, my background, my training, my sensibility, and just the realities of um, working in a college where the resources are limited, mm -hmm. the skill set of the of the students who really make these things. Uh, is limited, so uh, we got to teach them how to make a thing and something that they can master in a few weeks, so that the, they can execute it. And so that's a, those are limiting factors. I'm not working with uh, with professionals. So how do you you know how do you do? That's the one you're talking yeah, about, that, right? Yeah, government inspector. I'm gonna yeah. include some pictures of these. Yeah. Um, Antigone was pretty cool too. So Antigone was real interesting, uh, how it came about. Um, Antigone is built entirely out of um, the crates that they ship. Pallets. Uh, the pat. Well, yeah, the pallet. Uh, I guess the pallets are more than pallets. They're actually the the crates, the full, full complete okay. crates that uh, they ship um, uh, lawn mowers and snow snowmobiles in. Oh wow, that's cool. So there's a company over here in uh, in Schenectady uh, that um, that sells those things in winter. They sell the snowmobiles and some of the. So sell that was those. all found technically. Well, they had there's a a, scrap, a, a pile of scrap sitting just right outside their building, and so we went over one day and said, "What do you do with that stuff?" Well, we recycle it. So, well, can we have it? You know, for the theater. They said, "Yeah, sure." And they actually loaded up their own truck and delivered it here. So out back, I don't know where we. I'm looking around here. Out back, they delivered. Um, do many dozens, hundreds of these crates, just the crate ends, you know, the sides, yep. the tops, the bottoms, uh, the pallets, you know, yep. the pallet floors. We laid them all out according to um, uh, like size, shape, so cool. and dimensions. Then we went and we measured every one and made little elevation drawings of every unit. Then I translated all of those drawings into small model pieces. Now I had the entire set in half inch scale. Oh, and man. I built the model out of the elements. We tagged the elements. We coded them. Ran out there, brought in all the pieces, and assembled them um, uh, against the model. That's so cool. And so, if we hadn't, if we didn't, so basically those palettes defined the look of that of that set. That's cool. 
So literally, you just saw a pile. Well, this is clearly something from your childhood. You saw a, a pile, pile of lumber, of, pile of lumber, pile of paper, pile of cardboard, and said, "I'm going to build something out of that." Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. And then I fell in love with. And in a way, that's sort of like being a, a sculptor, where you've yeah. got. You've got to block a clay or block, block a marble. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, say, okay, here's the here's the material. Roll how do I how do I do it? Yeah. What do I do with this with this stuff? Yeah. And that was I have to say it was very satisfying because if I had to actually design the crates, the elements, yeah, it, it would have had a different look. Yeah, this had a, like that, yeah. a rustic look to it. And of course, you know those those things are a hardwood. Yeah. So um, just um, just handling them. It's not like dealing with pine, you know, where you yeah. can you know you can rip through it and shape it and whatnot this stuff was a little more resilient yeah and heavy because well, yes from shipping stuff everywhere everything's so yeah. gonna be like yeah beefy. so that was yeah that was uh, uh that was a lovely experience that's lovely very experience. cool and then also because the it was all open work it provided lots of opportunities for lighting because yeah. you could shoot through them a lot oh, of cool. shadows backlighting you know side lighting you could actually articulate the the sculptural elements of that set oh, yeah so it was cool. beautiful so to move slightly away from your set design, how did you get into puppetry? Um, or is this more of a hobby? I would say it's a hobby and a um, an area of curiosity for me. Okay. Um, so just to correct the record, I'm not really I'm not a puppeteer. Okay. I haven't really made puppet shows, but I had. Do you just build puppets? Um, I've made a few puppets. What the way it had, the way it evolved is I, um, I've always sort of enjoyed puppets, and I then discovered via um, Facebook, and the internet that there was a whole sort of universe, a sort of a sub-universe, a subculture Absolutely, of people yeah. who are involved in the puppet world, and so I started to, um, I started uh, attend puppet shows, and I. And I started. I joined some of these organizations, and I fr Facebook friended uh, lots of uh, people who were uh, real puppeteers. And then uh, one year, this has got to be ten, a dozen, maybe thirteen years ago, I thought I would um, teach a course in puppet theater as a subset because puppet theater really is where design and performance come together. Yeah. Using bringing inanimate material, so the same thing, cardboard and paper and fabric. Bring it to life. And make you have a performance. to learn it well enough to actually manipulate it. Exactly. So, so um, I proposed to teach a class in uh, puppet theater. It was approved, and then I said, "Oh my God, I don't know any. I don't know anything <laughs> about puppet theater enough to teach a course in it." So that's when I started to educate myself. And the first few years were a little bit ragged, uh, but then I, f I evolved a course that was a combination of studying about puppet theater. Um, historically and cross-culturally, mm -hmm. and also having uh, hands-on elements. So we started yeah, so in that class. Build, build Everybody puppets. had to make, um, first we started with uh, 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 sock puppets, which is a mouth puppet, and then uh, hand puppets. So we had a model, so they had to sculpt and use paper mache and actually sew. And so there was the, the, the practical aspect. And then at the end of the class, they had to actually do a show. Yeah, I, I saw several of them. They were very good. Yeah. So, so that's how that happened, and I sort of continued that uh, that interest. I think it's in a, in a way, it's a perfect thing for a stage designer, somebody who's involved in theater and performance, but comes at it from the from backstage, from the material side of, of performance. So, I guess one of the last questions I have for you is: now that you're retiring, uh, I asked you the other day if you were going to keep doing set design, and you said no with 
pretty much no hesitation. <laughs> now, I'm guessing that that's only going to last a few years, but that's just me. Um, <laughs> do you have plans for what you're planning on doing? Because I'm assuming you're not going to stop making things. No, no. I, in fact, we, uh, we bought a house in the area. Previous to buying the house, we had a little apartment, and I didn't have a studio to work in. So I worked work here, and yep. I worked, you know, we had a, a rental studio downtown. Have a, and, have a workshop, have yeah, tools. Oh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So my plan is to, um, to, to be a studio artist, to be an artist and, and work every day. And uh, I've got a lot of th thoughts. I mean, I, I think the puppets, uh, I think I'll, I'll continue that as a sideline. I like to draw. I build dioramas or I build these. I build these. So what they are is they're 3D pictures. Basically, they're pictures, but they're, they have a dimensionality to them. Yep. They have a, a relief to them. And um, so I think of them as pictures. But I think of them as uh, not really models. They're not really intended uh, ever to go on stage. They're not stage sets. Um, and there's an, a narrative quality to them. And yeah. I think I want to pursue that even further. I, um, I've done that for also for about 15 or 20 years. And, but, but, but it's been sort of helter-skelter. I can do some in the summer. I can do once in a while on a weekend. But I've never like been able to sit down and just spend months at a time making these things that's i think that's what i yeah, want to I mean, do you know me i'm all over the place <laughs> with my props with my duct tape stuff do, do, do metal working do woodworking do 3d printing so right yeah i i know that feeling um i just actually thought of this was there ever like a complete catastrophe during the construction of one of your sets of stage sets yeah not um, necessarily involving like human injury but just like Something that went completely differently than you expected. There were, well, there have been um, technical problems, and, and uh, we solved them before performance, before we, we mm -hmm. opened. So there are those. And then there were a couple of... There was one show where um, something we had done... Uh, we had an element that was that uh, had a rotate, and so it had a little motor in it, and it was suspended. And uh, the support, because it rotated and it moved... Um, it worked itself loose, and during a performance, it literally fell. Oof. And as it turns out, it fell on the uh, on uh, a table that two actors were sitting sitting at. Nobody got hurt, and the actors were really um, very swift, very clever. They picked it up, they carried it off, they went back and continued the scene. So it wasn't <laughs> you know it wasn't a disaster, disaster. Um, no, we've had other things like we did um, Dracula. And there was a lot of blood effects. Our director <laughs> wanted a lot of blood, and uh, so there was a vast amount of cleanup after after every performance. They're just yeah, oh, I mean, we I were remember. mopping like I, crazy I, for I, hours. I, I mean, uh, I don't remember Dracula. I mean, I, just in general, at uh, House of Blue Leaves, at the end of it, there's yeah. uh, was it leaves that fell from the ceiling? There were yeah. leaves, and leaves, yeah, the place was just yeah. like it was just covering. <laughs> so, I mean, also I remember. How did it feel like when you were watching the tech crew literally take sawzalls to your set every single time? So that's interesting that you you say that because just driving over here to meet you this morning, uh, Ginger and I were talking about it, and I, I said, you know, a friend of mine, I invited him to come see the play, and he's going away for vacation, and and he said to me, gee, will the set still be up afterwards? Nope. And I wrote to him and I said, in the theater when we do a strike. After the last performance and the audience has left the building, literally three hours, two hours, gone, yeah. three hours later, it it ceases to exist. It's gone. It's vanished. Yeah, I I mean, 
might be so hard for me. I mean, I'm sure you're used to it now. The but, first, uh, I used might to... might be kind of refreshing after a while. <laughs> per, exactly right. So what happened was the first bunch of years, uh, I would, like, sit in the... I would sit in the house and, like, weep. Uh. But I decided... I had, a, I had to come to terms with uh, the destruction of these things. Yeah. In some way. And that, I'm assuming that's where part of your photography passion came from, so that, like, you yeah. can preserve these you can preserve the the image but not the experience yeah well true but yeah but the image is part of the experience like it has been it's a you know aid to to memory exactly, and yeah. but it's a translation yeah of thing into another another medium and the media the second it's manifestation not <laughs> is not the but uh, what i had to finally do and i had to do uh, and i taught my students this also um is i had to think about the strike as the um, for the designer and for the uh, the tech staff, that was really the completion. It wasn't the end of the last performance, but the show didn't didn't actually wasn't resolved and didn't until end until the theater was empty again. Until the until, until the theater was vacuumed yeah, yeah. and and mopped and the and the huh. and the room was empty again and that was really that's when you could say and now the show is over i mean i guess it makes sense cuz like when i work on like a big project and i'm finally done with it like i don't actually feel done until i like clean up all the dust to like yeah yeah make my bench pristine and ready for a new project Ex so yeah i, I can actually exactly. see that um, but i can also like i can't imagine like if i built one of my props and then i had to like Somebody used it for a convention or something, and then they hand it back to me, and I have to like literally just smash it into pieces and throw it away. <laughs> um. So this idea of of making a thing whose um, whose fate is to cease to exist, as opposed to making something where we think that uh, that we're going to you know I think about uh, Michelangelo's sculptures. I mean the those marble pieces that were uh, you know carved and they remain hundreds of years later they 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 stand there and yet i make things that um three weeks two weeks from now they will no longer no longer exist um it's a different relationship to the to the objects of our desire the objects of our of our making yeah that's true. So if you think about the Buddhist sand paintings, those mandala paintings so, out of sand, do yeah, you, were you here when they did this? Not here, but when I no. was in high school, we had actually a bunch of Tibetan monks yes. come in and for, I think it was two weeks. Yes, exactly. Two yes. weeks, they literally just, like, every day for, yep. I think it was four hours, six hours a day, they were just hunched over this giant 12-foot-wide yeah, 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 yeah. mandala. And, like, it was mesmerizing watching them make this thing and if people listening haven't ever seen uh, a sand mandala being made even just watching it on youtube is mesmerizing but like if you ever have a chance watch it in person it's just in, so cool in, in real time the 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 focus of these um of these artists is crazy it's crazy and were you there for the um yep. for the removal ceremony so at the end they literally brush it all into dust pans yes and then bring it to a water source yes. and dump it into the water source so that the the prayers and spirituality of the mandala can then yeah. be carried to the whole world the first time I, and oh and coincidentally um 
these monks did come to Union so they, College they and, here and, did and they performed it in the Knott Memorial. Oh, that's Years cool. after it, you know, was no longer a theater, but it was just this beautiful building. They made it there, and then at the end, you know, when those weeks went by and it was finished, then they had that ceremony. It brought me to tears. It I was, said, here yeah, we are in this building where year after year, show after show, year after year, we did the same thing. We destroyed yep. our art. I said, yes, of cool. course. And for me, that was like, oh, yes. I get that, it. <laughs> I get it. That's what it's about. Yeah, that's cool. You know. That's very cool. So what's the first thing you're going to make when you're done here? Um, Do you have, like, a plan? Um, we're, um, well, we're, I think we're going to go home and vacuum. There you go. I'm going to vacuum out like the that. house. Uh, <laughs> I'm having bookshelves made. When they come in, we're going to uh, unpack all of the books <laughs> and put them on the shelves. Well, you mean you're not making the bookshelves? <clears throat> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. Um, I've, I, if there's one thing I've learned since I got out of school, it's that you know, like for, for probably a year or two after I got out of school, I was trying to learn everything and do everything yeah, myself. Yeah. And I got to a point where I realized that I'm never going to have the time to master all of the things I want to master. So why not pay the guy who spent half his life mastering this thing to do it way better than I ever could and learn from that, but just like let someone else use the skills that they have to do it for me. So like, I totally understand. Uh, I, had that, I had that same revelation uh, at a point in my career. So I did a lot of photography, mm -hmm. and I was trying to exhibit the photography, and so you have to you know, mat it and frame it. And <clears throat> Same thing with my drawings. I was trying to show drawings, yep. and, I, and I didn't have enough money to like, always take it to a framer. So, um, so I bought, I bought mat boards, and I bought glass framing, in bulk, yeah. and I bought glass cutters, and I would buy, buy all the, uh, the molding, and, and I would cut the stuff. And I would be spending my whole summer just matting and framing these things. And at one point, I said, well, I just spent my whole summer doing something that I could pay somebody else to do. Exactly. And, and then you find out, you're like, oh, and it's actually worth me paying somebody else to do it. actually worth because then I can produce my art and, and exactly. have somebody else do it. I said, oh, well, I wasted, like, two years of my life. Just, but now you know how to do it. So. I know how to do it, and I know how, when it's done well by somebody else, exactly. uh, how to appreciate it. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's the kind of thing, like, I, having done some of my own... Like, I, I can weld, I can do carpentry, because I did sets and stuff here. My dad right. taught me a lot. And uh, there's a point where, like, okay, I know how to use a CNC machine to cut out this very complicated thing I won't cut out, but it would take me four hours, whereas this guy who literally does it every day, all day long, and that's, like, what he loves doing, could yeah. do it in one hour. Yeah. Like, so, like, I'm just going to let him do it and appreciate the time and effort that it took to do that. And that gets back to what we were talking about before was... Um, uh, sort of a collaboration. We have these resources around us, and mm -hmm. whether if you can access them, if they're convenient and and affordable, um, that's part of the, the 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 collaboration. We were doing a a play here, and I had to make something that looked like uh, wrought iron. We were doing um, we were doing what was the play? Uh, 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 Streetcar Named Desire, and it's uh, uh, we're in yeah. New Orleans, and yeah. it's got all that beautiful wrought iron work and mm -hmm. whatnot, and. Um, 
<clears throat> back in the old days, we would just take uh, skill saws, saber saws, and cut them out of, you know, homosoda, luan, and, you know, make them by hand. We have the water jet over here. Yep, so you could just cut, yeah. So, um, you know, it still had to be programmed. The drawings had to be translated. Yep. So that, But they cut all these things out, and we got, you know, and then we got these beautiful things that I could then paint instead of having to spend a lot of time, a lot of hours just yeah. saber sawing them. Yeah, and I mean, uh, just the ability of computers to make the things that they do now, like with the, the computer-controlled cutting and printing, it's just like, I can't even imagine the expanded possibilities for a lot of this stuff. I mean, I actually, correction, I can imagine because I have some experience with these now. So like just seeing all these sets and like if there was like a newer um, play that was like set in modern times or futuristic times, there's so many cool things you can do with it. But the fact that people were still able to make things without that beforehand also makes it all that more impressive. Also, uh, um, as um, as these things become more of sort of commercially available, available commercially yeah, yeah. viable, um, the cost does come down. Oh, absolutely. So years ago, we um, actually had a student who was a, an engineering student who was involved in the theater who built, uh, literally built, I got him, got him some uh, grant money, and he built a vacuform machine. And so for several years, we had a vacuform machine, and we were able to, you know, make stuff that way. I'm actually building one right now. That you are? Yeah. What's, how, what size? Uh, the one I'm working on is uh, going to be two, for two foot by two foot, but Sweet. the designs are open source, so you can yeah. literally scale it to whatever Scale you it, yeah. Um, you have to obviously appropriately scale the electrical heating elements. Yes. But, um, you could scale the bed to whatever size you want. Right, right. So he um, he built this thing. We had it. And we used it for many years. Uh, but since then, you know, it, it went into disuse. And that was a long time ago. And since then, I've thought, oh, this would be really great if we had it. And we we've, we've talked about it. Um, they're still expensive to buy commercially, they're whether it's vi val valuable enough for us to invest in trying to build one. And the other thing is, where do you store it? If you don't use it often, like mm -hmm. our shop tools, it's the machines kind of, we use frequently. It's the kind of tool that takes up. Takes up space, and you might use it once every few years, possibly. Yeah, so the reason I'm building one right now is that the, the Artisans Asylum, we had one. So for a while, I'd been asking for us to get one, and I'd found a couple viable options, but then somebody just <coughs> up and donated one. Oh. It huh. formed two foot by four foot sheets, maximum, and it took up about 64 square feet yeah. of floor space. Yeah. Was, it's basically designed for industrial use where you just like attach this massive roll to it. Yep. It worked great, but it took up the entire room of where I wanted to propose there to be a prop shop. Right, um, right, right. So I finally convinced them that it was not worth us keeping this one and that we could build one that would form the same area and fit in like eight square feet <laughs> or a little bit more than eight square feet, maybe 10. Um, so uh, that's what I ended up doing. That's why I'm building one now. Um, but there's, there's a, you can just go online. It's called Protoform for people who are interested in this. Uh -huh. um, plans are about 60 bucks. You can buy <coughs> heating element kits from the company that sells oh, the really? plans. Yep. Um, and then just it's just lumber, steel, and air tanks and uh, an air pump and some dials and, uh, and uh, but you need a, a perforated bed right yeah but they uh, have uh, like CAD plans for all this stuff yeah um, so that you can just 
do it, and it's, I mean, I'm the only person doing it, and I'm doing a lot of other things, so it's taking me longer, but if it were, like, my only project, probably could do it in a weekend if you had all yeah, the materials. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, so I'm really excited for it to be working. So what what we ended up doing, because we didn't have access uh, uh, to a vacuum form machine, is I just found a bunch of online catalogs of companies that sell this kind of stuff, and the prices are were within our budget. And so I just bought all that all that ornamental stuff that in previous oh, yeah? years I yeah, would so have. So that's all vacuum formed. No, it's all all out of. Uh, oh, it's all all out of uh, this uh, this company. That <coughs> architectural depot. In the in the past, I wouldn't even have so looked at what that. What material stuff. is it? It's uh well, they have a variety. There's some some out, some out of wood, the machined you know machine wood, but um, they're uh, some kind of uh, composite, some kind of a injected composite Very material, cool. plastic. Uh, so I almost wonder if some of these like, oh yeah, it's 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 ex some of it's probably extruded. Some of it's probably just molded. Molded somehow it's yeah. That's very cool. Yeah, I was gonna originally. I thought, <laughs> oh, really we can cool. we can uh, do I'm, this I'm out of paper mache. I'm looking at an inch thick catalog filled with just like fancy Art Deco, yeah, um, wooden and plastic ornamental pieces. That's very cool. And that's really intended. I think their their customer base is uh, mostly uh, interior design and restorations. Yeah, and restorations. Um, and maybe not so much theatrical applications, but it was great. I mean, it saved my life. That's so cool. I mean, we were going to make it out of paper mache. That would have been was, horrible. It was horrible. It been, <laughs> that would have been, been a nightmare. Awful. I would have been a nightmare. I would not have slept that, that, that for eight weeks. Awful. Well, so it's interesting. It's actually that sort of thing. If you can find 3D models of it, that's the sort of thing that a CNC carving machine can do pretty easily. Yeah. Um, but... That's, but that's but funny. the scale but the scale, the scale I mean, the pieces are you know the size yeah and, you know yeah um, takes forever time right. and power like yeah so cornices like just, I used to do we used to do cornices you know we'd have to make them you'd have to buy uh, cornice, uh, you know cornice molding oh, yeah, like yeah, a ceiling the, molding the big, if you're yeah. doing something really fancy you want to do a you know a, a palace or a Victorian or something or yeah. you have to make a compound thing with a profile piece and you have to start with a a crown and another kind of piece and another piece and another piece and that's how we were trained and that's how you would do it. Yeah. And uh, and now you can just buy it. Yeah. <laughs> you can so go over to Lowe's and buy it, and that, so which cool. is what I, I did for this one. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. I mean, uh, just the, the number. So do you know the number of sets that you've designed and built? Um, at Union, 121. Wow. Uh, so and then I've done stuff, you know, elsewhere. And, yep. and, and so, yeah, I don't know, maybe 150 or so much. So how old were you when you started teaching? So I was a kid. I was just out of grad school. So I must have been about 20, uh, 25 or so. So like just a few years older than some of your students. Exactly. And so um, because of that, um, I've remained friends with like the Most first them, yeah. the first decade of my teaching experience. I've become personal friends and we've continued on all these years. Yeah. Yeah, that's so cool. I oh, was it Ginger uh, said that. They were once your students, and now they're basically your contemporaries. Yeah, and now they are my contemporaries. Yeah, I don't think of them as, although I still call them my kids. That's which is, that's which so is funny because they're all old and gray now. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're my kids. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, is there anything you want to tell my listeners about being a maker or uh, being a set designer? Being a maker. Well, any advice you want to give? I think it's real interesting that you're uh, that you do this. 
Um, I'm just tell him about you. Um, <clears throat> so did you ever take like an actual class with me? I don't think so. I didn't, unfortunately. No. I wanted to. Um, but I mean, we were around and we yeah, worked together I, on I lots worked, of things. I worked in the theater <clears throat> as a work study, so we worked together a to lot, lot, but I wasn't yeah. an official student. Ever. But the other thing is that because you had this um, uh, hobby, I guess, yeah. of uh, building models out of duct tape, duct out of tape, duct tape, yeah. uh, and I really thought it was just fascinating. Not just, I mean, the, the idea of making anything out of anything. I mean, you, you know, you can carve out a Velveeta cheese. And yeah. if you take it to another level, it does. It becomes compelling and fascinating yeah. what you can do with any material. So you, you, you had a kind of um, a rule about how you would uh, allow yourself to use the material and limits. Uh, yep. And so the idea that, and that kind of pushed you into um, increasingly, increasingly more sophisticated levels of refinement yeah, because absolutely. you would not put, I mean, even when I said the other day that, you know, um, there was no, in, no inner structure, yeah. no, but it, there is an inner structure, but it's still out of the same material. Yeah. So like, cause theoretically I could just like make a giant ball of duct tape. Right. And then kind Car of sculpt around sculpt it. it. Um, but rather than that, I actually like engineer the inside of it. Yeah. Um, and also, then you go deeper into sort of an analysis of the um, the physical properties and the, and the physical nature of the of the material itself. Absolutely. And yeah. analyzing each of its um, uh, uh, identifying each of its sort of component um, properties. The, the yeah, nature yeah. of its yeah of, of so that materiality. 3M um, recently started sending me tape. Um, so, uh -oh. I, uh, the first set they sent me, they sent me their three new duct tapes. Uh, there's DT8, which is 8 mil tape. Yeah. Um, DT11 and DT17. So I assumed that they'd all be similar, just with, like, different thread counts and different adhesives and different plastic coatings. Right. So the 8 mil tape is very thin and flexible, and it's got the lowest thread count of all of them. But the DT11, which is a little bit thicker, yeah. has a much stronger adhesive, and... Interestingly enough, I'm not sure if this was intended to happen or if it just like was like a batch thing, but if I take the silver and the black, yeah, they they have different ripping properties. Uh-huh. Um so like the black DT11 tape, you can rip off the roll nice and easy, but if you try and rip it vertically, it won't rip. It, along it's so like uh, lines? if I have like a long piece and I try and lip, rip it oh. all the way down, um it it's very difficult. And if you do get it to rip, it'll rip and then kind of just like break off horizontally. Really? Yeah. Um, it's very strong. And then the DT17 tape, which is much thicker, so it's a lot less flexible, but it can give like a much smoother appearance, is easier to rip both ways, but it has a stronger adhesive. So like there's a bunch of different, with this new tape, I haven't actually made like a big project with it because I'm still trying to figure out the best ways to use it. Because uh, previously I only used duck brand tape because, like, I had learned the properties of their different grades of tape. Right. Um, but now that I'm getting free tape, I and it's better, so I'm gonna. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's actually like it's kind of fun actually because uh, the DT11 tape also when when I roll it into my little rolls, yeah. it's not it's not as stiff as I'm used to. It's it's f more flexible, um, but. The DT the seventeen is much more stiff, so I have to like figure out ways to. I'm used to basically an in between. I'm used to like when I roll it into this rod, 
it being in between those two flexibilities. So if I try and make something new, structurally expecting it to behave the same way, it's not going to work because it's not going to. So I have to learn how to like uh, get that to work. So you were learning that the um, the physical uh, limits yeah. of the material, even when you uh, laminate and mm -hmm. combine, and you know, you know the, the the structural properties of the material. Um, but now you're introducing um, uh, another variability. Yeah. So previously, unlike the big uh, Serenity that I made, um, I used three different grades of duck brand tape and double-sided duck brand tape. Right. Um, so the lowest grade is the most flexible, but it rips easily, so it's not like for strength, but like if I need like compound curves and like fancy stuff, that's what I would use. But so the, the new thinner one is probably going to translate pretty much the same way. But uh, based on like strength and flexibility, I'm going to have to determine what's better for structural elements and what's not. Because right. there's a, because if you combine 10 of the ropes of the flexible stuff, it'll become a rod and basically not move because they all stick to each other. But there's just so many, like, it's just such a complex material that it, it's it's actually kind of an intellectual pursuit as exactly. well as, as well as um, just building something. Yeah, you have to keep asking, especially if you're um, pushing the material into areas in which um, it was never meant to, be never used. meant to, or you haven't experienced yet. Exactly. And so basically, you're doing you're doing you're doing fundamental research in the in the you know yeah. of the material's behavior. So like I want to do another big project right away, but I'm realizing that I I shouldn't. I should do some smaller ones to learn the appropriate properties before I like try and integrate this into a massive project. Otherwise, I'm just gonna like, keep hitting. Uh, like speed bumps and walls where right. I have to like undo something and redo it a different way. That's part of the process, of course, but um, it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Um, so getting back to this idea of so like durability and longevity, mm -hmm. you're working with a material that's never, you know, is meant for, you know, I don't know how, you know, when they test their product, do they want it to last a hundred years? Or, well, yeah, so that's the or, interesting thing because some of the, so for example, my, Initially, when I was working with duck brand tape, there's three grades. There's uh, everyday, <coughs> professional, and industrial. I liked professional originally, but I discovered after about five years after I made the car that I originally showed you, I made mm -hmm. a duct tape Duesenberg SJ um, mm -hmm. initially to show to Jay Leno, and then Jay Leno didn't care. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I, uh, it <laughs> fell apart because the adhesive on it dried out. Dries out, yeah. It and it, when it dries out, it doesn't stick anymore. So then I started using the industrial, and the industrial actually stays sticky. It dries out, but um, only when exposed to air. So, oh. whereas the professional actually would dry out even when sealed. Um, oh, really? Yeah. It will, uh -huh. So that's what was happening. So that's, I'm gonna have to figure out which one will last longer. Um, with the new version, and uh, it may just involve me just like leaving a piece of duct tape exposed to air on my workbench for a while and see what happens. But um, we'll see. Uh, yeah, because it turns to turns to powder. dust. It turns dust. to powder. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. 
I did. A, I taught a class uh, for a few years in which uh, the students had to. One of the the assignments was to. Um, they had to find something to study, but what they had to find was it had to be something really basic and commonplace. It couldn't be sophisticated or complicated or academic. They had to find something to collect. And it could be like the tops of, uh, let's say, the tops of, uh, uh, yeah, what are these things? So if you had a big pen or ballpoint pen, a big pen, <clears throat> they had to like collect the tops. But what they had to do is they had to refine their collection, which meant that they had to observe uh, increasingly more carefully and deeply, and they had to keep refining and refining their collection. So, okay, um, the tops of ballpoint pens. No, they can only be big. No, they can only be red. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. they can only have tooth marks on them. No, they can only be found in the parking lot. No, they can only be found in the parking lot of... And so increasing levels of refinement force them to become the world's foremost authority of that particular collection. Yep. To get them to sort of... Um, focus in, take a microscope, and look much more carefully at some thing, some phenomena. Yep, yeah, yeah. Right. And that's sort of like what you're, you're, you're yeah, doing it's, it's by yeah, limit, yeah. limiting your, your, uh, your purview. Uh, people are usually, when they ask me about it, and I just say, well, I mean, I could talk about duct tape for hours. <laughs> like, they're like, really? Uh -huh. like, no, actually. Yes, well, like, of course. Literally every brand, <laughs> yeah. every type is different. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're all adhesives with a polyethylene-based plastic and then threads in it, but different thread material, different adhesive, different types of plastic, different flexibilities of plastic, like literally all sorts of crazy stuff. It's, I, if you are a maker, I haven't actually said this on any of my episodes, I highly recommend finding a material that you really like. So, EVA foam. I don't know how much work you've done with EVA foam, ethyl vinyl acetate. It's like floor mat foam. Uh-huh. Um, it's crazily versatile. Like, you can do all sorts of cool stuff with it. But people only figure this out after they didn't have any other materials, and that's all they used for one project. All right. Like, they make props out of it. They make costumes out of it. You can make, like, enormous mechanical costumes that, like, are basically structural. Um, do you do you, how do you um uh, it, yeah, how do you heat, how do you use it? How do it's you, heat formable, heat formable, sandable, sandable to a point depending on the density of the foam. Yeah, it's very light, so weight usually isn't an issue, um, and it's paintable. So Ten, tensile properties, and depending on the type, the density of the foam and the grade of the foam, it'll stretch a little bit. Um, when you heat it up, you can stretch it, and uh, so if you heat if you heat it up and then bend it, it'll retain its shape when it cools. Um, ah, so it's got memory. Yeah. Ah. So, but but different brands of floor mat, different types of EVA foam will spring back a little bit. Some yeah. of them will stay. Some of them uh, have pressure memory. Um, ah. Some of them have. It, it's very cool. So, like, if you make a cut in it with an exacto knife, it'll look like it self heals. Yeah. But then if you heat it up, it'll expand. It'll open up. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, like, there's all sorts of really cool stuff. And I mean, I'm no expert on this. There are people who are 
mind-bogglingly amazing with this material, but, like, I just, like, I remember when I worked with you, your knowledge of paint and the science of paint is just, like, something that I would love to have, because I've just been getting a little bit more into painting my props, and just, like, the chemistry of paint in general is kind of yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, like, knowledge of materials is something that is very important, and, like, that is something that a lot of the mechanical engineers that I work with don't, or do have that I don't. They, they know machinability of different grades of aluminum. Um, right. And heat tempering temperatures for different grades of steel. Like, that sort of sorts of things. So, like, if you know your material, that's when you can actually, like, really do things. And that's what I like. It was, like, a lot of the coolest effects that I saw on the sets that I built or paint effects that you did, and I just loved that. The other thing is that, and, and this is the the sort of uniqueness of theater, we're in a, uh, unless you're doing stuff out, out of doors, which yeah, is yeah, a different course. kind of thing, but if you're doing it inside of a theater, um, you're controlling the light, so you know the lighting will will control the effect. So if I know that it's going to be in the theater, and lighting is going to be on these things, you know to what extent you have to Paint it so it's convincing, or paint it so that you know nobody's going to notice. You can conceal things. There's the properties of you know light and dark and reflectivity. Yeah, it's so it's. Uh, so like what's going on on the set out there now with those props, all of those books. Yeah. I know that the audience, because the audience will always be you know, thirty plus feet away. Mm -hmm. Unless we let them to walk out on the set. Of if they course. walk up close to it, they can the illusion the illusion is destroyed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as long as they remain from the point of view of uh, that we've designed, uh, they, they they will. Well, so that's one of the reasons why I still haven't decided if I want to go into like the movie prop making business. Because <clears throat> now, I, I, the numbers I say when I say this quote might change uh, depending on what I remember. But it used to be. Uh, like a three-foot rule for cameras. Oh, really? Okay. On screen. So, like, a prop that. had to look good from three feet away. But now it's, like, three inches with HD TVs. Oh, yes, of course. So, like, you literally have to be able to pick it up and inspect it. <clears throat> and it has to look perfect. Whereas previously, it didn't. Um, right. It could be, it could be close. Um, but, like, so even stunt props now have to be pristine. Which is crazy to me, which means that, like, you can't just use a rubber gun anymore. You have to have a rubber gun that's been painted to look like it has different types of metal in it <sighs> and different, like, a slide that moves and, like, all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, so, like, there's all sorts of cool things about, um, yeah, like, yeah. kind of suspension of disbelief. So, like, it if it looks good from a certain distance on stage, then kind of looks good. Enough. It's good enough, yeah. Like, uh, but then if you walk up on stage or you're the actor, actor using it and it looks like you're like yeah this is this, this is fake <laughs> like this this uh, <laughs> or like they open up a book just like a little two pieces of plastic that are like literally just taped to paper um or whatever um yeah they were asking me to make some props for this show and i said how you know how, uh, will the audience see this do they need to see both sides you know what will it you know what and yeah yeah well i think that our time is pretty much up but I want you to tell my listeners where they can find some pictures of your work. So um, I have a website. Um, needs a little bit of uh, updating, some more images, and I think my... You'll have time to do this. Yeah. Is, yes, I will. 
So it's www.charlessteckler.com. And can you spell Steckler for our S-T-E-C-K-L-E-R. And uh, the website, if you like the website, was uh, built for me, designed and built for me by uh, Rich, uh, Rich uh, Mendoza. Uh, a friend of mine and a former student of mine from the early 70s. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Have you ever uh, calculated how many students you've had? No. I, oh, it's funny you should say that. I, I was going to do that. We never got to finish it. But I have the... They I actually have the, probably will tell you at your uh, <laughs> event later today. Maybe they will. Uh, maybe somebody knows that. I have, I have all the rosters for every course I ever taught. Oh, my gosh. So you could figure it out. I could, <laughs> but you're, you're not, you don't want to. <laughs> get somebody else to do yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Get, you get, get, get a work study to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing about working in the theater is um, there were many students that I worked very closely with, like you, for example, who um, never actually took a, a formal course yeah, with course. me, but I worked with them you know, lots and lots and lots of hours in the theater. Cool. Well, uh, this has been a Maker Tale, and thanks for listening, guys. <laughs>